Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to episode 66 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where with my good friend and colleague Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive into a compliance or compliance related topic, literally going into the weeds to fully geek out around the subject. Today we're going to take a look at the misconduct penalty or the stigma effect that every executive has going forward in terms of salary if they have worked at a company which has had a financial restatement or other nefarious act happen on their watch. This is not people who have actually participated in a fraud or other misconduct which could lead to a financial misstatement but just people who have worked at those companies. It's based upon a blog post that Matt had on January 15th entitled The Salary Penalty for Misconduct, which is based upon a paper by George Serafin and Boris Groisberg from the Harvard Business School, where they took a look at a wide range of job placements and pay data since 2004, and they found a stigma of listing a discredited company on your resume, even if it had nothing to do with the misconduct, uh, if you had nothing to do with the misconduct. It's a really interesting uh, topic, and it's something that uh, chief compliance officers and compliance practitioners need to be able to raise to senior management as yet another reason that they should have a robust ethical culture and compliance program in place. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, the compliance podcast that takes a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic, literally going into the weeds. Today, we have a really interesting, uh, weedy, nerdy, geeky, yet extremely uh, interesting and important topic, which is the salary penalty for misconduct. It's based upon a blog post that Matt wrote earlier in this week uh, that really started with a fascinating paper. So, Matt, why don't you take it from there? Yeah, this was just great, Tom. Um, This is a paper written by two Harvard Business School professors that I came across not long ago. Uh, they are Boris Groisberg and George Serafim, and um, they looked at how working at a company that has, as they said, had been shamed by having a financial restatement, having a company like that in your past resume or your work history somewhere, how does that affect the salary that you can get at your next job? And they found that, broadly speaking, you can lose anywhere from 4 to 10% of the salary at your next job when the recruiters there are looking to see. And they say, oh, yeah, he worked here, she worked there, they had a restatement, they've had trouble. So, therefore, they are tainted uh, because they worked at the tainted company, so we wind up giving them a lower salary. Um, that's basically what the paper found. And I wouldn't even say that is a particularly nerdy or niche kind of a topic. I mean, that's really relevant for compliance officers or any other senior executive. If you work at a company that experiences misconduct, you're going to wind up paying for that as you go on through your career with your next job, because people will be more likely to pay you less. 
So, Matt, when I first read your paper, I was uh, concerned that this would be uh, that they were focusing on chief compliance officers and uh, how uh, even um, people in the compliance function. But that's not the focus of their paper. It's it's on senior execs and management. Uh, So could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So their finding applies to anyone. Any executive, I suspect that uh, some similar salary penalty exists for lower employees, but I'll walk you through the study, and here's what they they did. Uh, They looked at, they teamed up with a big global recruitment firm, and they looked at slightly more than 2,000 job placements at the executive level um, from 2004 to 2011. And out of the 2,000 placements that they examined, they found that roughly 18% of the people had a company in their past that had experienced a financial restatement. They defined misconduct or tainted company as a restatement. Um, But then through a very long, elaborate formula that they concocted, which is on their paper, if you took college-level calculus and you're brave, you could read the formula, you could probably plug in your own variables, but they came up with a formula accounting for um, number of years in the past of this restatement, um, your position, your current salary, the salary you get at the placement that they were examining, and all these other factors, uh, and they found a few big conclusions. Um, So overall, somebody with a restatement in their past was more likely to get a 4.6% salary reduction in their next offer. Like they would be offered 4.6% less in the placement they got compared to a comparable executive who did not have a tainted company in his or her works history. And that was for anyone. That's for the VP of sales, the head of uh, intellectual property, the chief compliance officer, the VP of financial planning and analysis, the chief operating officer, anybody at all, any title, the whole nine yards, they did not restrict who they looked at, 4.6% less. If you had a restatement in your recent past, you would probably suffer about a 5.6% salary penalty. And they defined recent as nine years. So everybody listening, think about how many jobs and how many career shifts have you made over the last nine years. And this could still affect you to that greater degree. Um, And then any executives out there who are listening, specifically working in the finance function, you are most likely to get a up to a 9.9% reduction or a penalty in your future salary, which does make sense because they were looking at uh, financial misconduct in a restatement. That was their definition. Uh, They did not look at things like an FCPA violation, anti-money laundering violations, or sexual harassment trouble or anything like that. But I think we could safely assume that this misconduct penalty as defined by financial restatements, I mean, does anybody really think that doesn't also hold true for other types of misconduct? If you are working at Uber with its harassment trouble or Wells Fargo with its uh, false accounting scandals and whatnot, um, the mere existence of having a tainted company on your resume somewhere can lead to a penalty you're going to suffer when you go out in the job market. Um and, and by the way, Tom, I should point out that now here's the bad news is that this, these numbers they found are probably even worse in real life 
because they only looked at job placements that actually happened. So think of all the job placements that people might have been trying for that they never got at all because the recruiter said, oh, well, you know, you worked at Enron in 2001, out. You worked at Uber in 2016, out. You worked at Wells Fargo, out. The, the numbers they came up with are for people who overcame that, I guess we'll call it stigma, that stigma risk anyways, and they still suffered this penalty. There's a whole other realm of candidates who never even got that far so probably your career prospects are that much more worse. We'll never know exactly how much worse, but these numbers they already found, they ain't good to begin with. So um, I was intrigued also, Matt, with the reasons for this um, discount, lower salary, um, cost going forward. And the point you raised in your blog post was that uh, – People in this situation may be not exactly desperate, but uh, they may be willing to consider a lower salary, and uh, employers and recruiters will exploit that. But I wanted to maybe take it uh, uh, either a step further in a little bit different direction, because my experience with this type of catastrophic corporate failure in Houston, of course, is around Enron. And Mm -hmm. uh, I saw people uh, have to take uh, much lower-paying jobs after Enron imploded, and um, whether they were tainted or not, uh, to, to your point, they simply worked there. And many people in the, that I knew in the Enron legal department had to go out and, and get other jobs. Now, part of that was because Enron uh, paid top dollar, but nevertheless, uh, they were in a position where um, they weren't just tainted and they weren't just looking. They had to get something else and had to get something different. You know, that's very true. Um the, the business professors, they, of course, being professors, they put a uh, an economic analysis spin on this first. They're basically saying um, what explains that gap is, well, the recruiters must uh, do a little bit more extra work and have to argue your case a little bit more to the hiring managers that, oh, yeah, they worked at the tainted company, but we should hire them anyways because of X, Y, and Z. And so maybe that is the, the cost of that extra labor manifests in the salary gap. Now, that's what economics and business professors like to say. I, I think, you know, very much like you said, here in the real world, if you're at a company that has tr- terrible reputation and suddenly implodes, you're hard up for work, you're willing to take a lower job. And uh, people are going to know that and they're going to um, exploit it. What I also thought was interesting was really the point that this, this phenomena exists even if you never had anything to do with the misconduct at all. Um, they had a wonderful quote there. Uh, they say, though not guilty of financial misrepresentation, alumni may be considered guilty of participating in an enabling culture. So that might explain, you know, you work at company X from 2010 to 2014, but then they have a big blowout in 2016 and you were not involved in it. You were already gone before it ever happened, maybe. But here in 2018, you're trying to get a job. You got company X on your resume, even though you had nothing to do with this. Then suddenly, boom, you're suffering the salary penalty, the, the misconduct penalty. Um, I think that's a very persuasive argument for compliance officers when you have these town halls trying to tell people, why does this matter? 
Because if this stuff happens and you are anywhere near it, it's like a thermonuclear blast. You know, you don't have to be at ground zero to get seriously contaminated. Um, you can be far away from it and you can be far away from it in time and in responsibility. You're still going to see this happen to you. Uh, and I think that's a very persuasive way to get people's attention that, yes, this matters because we as a society, we we penalize penalty people, rightly or wrong, wrongly. We penalize them if we think you must be near that tainted, shady business for some reason. So let me uh, – wow, no wonder they call economics the dismal science. Um, yeah. But um, let, me, let me take this a little bit different direction because it's something I've been thinking about in terms of hiring – from companies that have had a catastrophic failure, whether it be Wells Fargo, Uber, FCPA, or uh, Enron, or other. And it's mm -hmm. really the following. Um, if an employee is at one of those companies, are they so tainted that they now wear a red flag firmly pasted on their forehead or their chest that cannot be overcome? And I would like to contrast that with someone along the lines of Thomas Watson Sr., who said, you know, I want to hire the guy that's failed because he's going to learn from his lessons and uh, apply those lessons going forward. Um, and I'm just wondering if, if is, is that such a dichotomy now or um, do people uh, basically get one chance now and that's it? I, I probably would split those out. There's a distinction between you failed because you broke the law and you committed misconduct and you failed because, you know, you didn't build the flying car on the first try. Okay, you know, the Ford advanced R&D department is still going to hire you to see maybe you can build it on the second try. Um, if you fail because you couldn't make your sales numbers, so you bribed your way to the top and then you got busted on an FCPA violation, that's different. And I could see the next hiring guy saying, I'm sorry, but I just don't think that that's going to work. Um, and, you know, I, while I agree that uh, Thomas Watson had a very sort of forward thinking and I, I think intelligent response to how you should hire people who learn from failure. I mean, there's different types of failure and there's different types of people. Some of us are very cynical out there. Um, and, you know, we have got no idea how the modern recruiting system works through you know, automating uh, keywords that maybe they just want to say no engineers who worked at Uber in the last two years because they're all, you know, there's rampant allegations of harassment. Let's save ourselves that trouble. There are other engineers that were just as good working at other places where we don't have to worry about that. Um, it was, uh, I, I don't know if it's, like I said, if it's right or wrong, but the fact is it's there. It correlates and it feels right to me. Um, I can remember once, long ago, I interviewed Sam Antar. So for those of you who don't know Sam, wow. he is a well-known anti-corruption uh, activist. He's a business professor these days who was a corrupt CFO at a stereo company up in the Northeast back in the <laughs> 80s. It was involved in a gigantic fraud that he wound up testifying against his brother, who then went to prison. But... Sam Antar, and I talked to Sam in 2007, and this misconduct happened in 1980, whenever. Sam was saying it was a terrible thing he did because he would get calls from recruiters in like 2001. Oh, I see so-and-so worked at Crazy Eddie's back in the 80s. Were they involved in the misconduct? He's like, no, you know, the number of people who did this were small. Right. This was forever ago. 
everybody now has like 15 years of work experience yeah. since then. And still recruiters would say, oh, but you worked way back there back in the day. So you must have a cloud over you. And he said that was a very powerful sense that really made him learn the, the error of his ways. And this is just a formulaic quantification of that same phenomena that he was saying. Is, you know, like, yes, you know, this can haunt people, innocent people, for a long, long time. So we all have to be involved in getting good conduct because we're all going to get bit on the rear end if we don't. So you touched on this a little bit, but um, I'd like to maybe explore how the compliance practitioner, the compliance professional, the chief compliance officer can really use this information going forward. And, and let me contrast it with a different approach, which I've heard Dan Chapman talk about. And he, he talks about when speaking to senior executives, if you have to give up 5, 10, or 20% of your time to deal with a, a corruption investigation or other major internal investigation, what would that mean for your personal productivity and what would that mean for the profitability of the company? Uh, this obviously is a little bit different because you're speaking uh, to people on their personal career paths going forward. But it seems to me we're developing a body of more than anecdotes, anecdotal stories or anecdotes. We're developing a body of evidence would suggest really uh, long term uh, stigmata and uh, uh, loss of profitability effects by not having a compliance program in place. You know, what I did um, was I think compliance officers could take this and put a very personal spin on it at these town halls or board meetings or you're meeting with the business unit leaders about what does this mean for you. Um, I took a hypothetical. Let's say that you and I are both up for a VP job um, of any sort, you know, business development or procurement or compliance or legal or whatever. But we're up for a VP job that pays 175000 a year. That's the probably the going rate around the Northeast. Um, I know one company where that's what they were offering lately. Um, but because I worked at the corrupt company five or 10 years ago, um, I'm going to wind up suffering a 5.6% penalty. So, Tom, you get the job, you get 175000 I get the next VP job, I only make $165,200. That's the difference. But that's in the first year. So now you and I are there for another 12 years, and we get 3% pay raises every year. But because I started at that lower base, I'm going to make less money year after year after year. At the end of the 12 years, I have earned cumulatively $143,000 less than you. Put that to your B VP of procurement who's complaining, why do we need to upend all of our processes? Well, do you want to lose $143,000 over the next 12 years? Because maybe you could, because that's the math. And like that's what we have seen here. You know, they quantified the salary penalty. I'm just playing it out over time. Um, over the course of your career, you could lose hundreds of thousands of dollars, potentially for something that you had nothing to do with at all. And therefore, why would you not want to be heavily invested in keeping the misconduct out of your company? And uh, in fact, there's even one great little anecdote I'll share. I posted this article on LinkedIn and Scott Moritz, who is uh, one of the other notable compliance thinkers out there, I think uh, he works at, where does Scott work these days? Pro Probiti? Uh, yes. 
So Scott was pointing out that he knew of instances where people came in to a company after the restatement, after the mess. They were there to clean it up. Right. And when they were looking to move on, recruiters would say, well, you're at the mess company. Were you involved in that? Like, and you have to argue your way out. No, I wasn't involved. I showed up after. I was there to clean it up. You should be giving me more money because I'm good at the cleaning. But human nature being what it is, you lose sight of that. You remember the keywords. You remember Enron. You remember WorldCom. You remember mess. You remember, oh, so therefore they must be tainted. It doesn't matter how true that is or not true or how fair it is. People struggle with it. And then they wind up in these positions, even though they're, they should not at all. And it's not fair. But there you are. So let me take this, uh, unpack that two completely different directions, Matt. The first sure. of all, as a recovering trial lawyer, I wanted the worst cases. I wanted the, uh, in my world, catastrophic uh, uh, property damage cases or the huge contract cases because those those were the bigger challenges. Now, lawyers are not people. They're not civilians. I understand that. Um, mm-hmm. But the flip side of that is now take the perspective of the potential employer. Uh, I've worked at Crazy Eddie. Then I went to work at uh, Enron. Then I went to the next one. And uh, if you're an employer and you see that on a resume, what is your liability if, if you don't even ask the question, though, because certainly I, I would say there's a potential red flag there, and it, and it must be cleared. What if it turns out that I was one of the um, – uh, or the example I would give you is I once was consulting with a company that wanted to hire one of the convicted felons from Wilbro's, uh, the jail time convicted felon. And, uh, you know, we argued – the compliance function argued as strenuously so we could, as we could – that that could not be done because that was put the company on clear, actual knowledge that they had someone who engaged in prior uh, conduct, which violated the FCPA. And if they did so at their new employer, uh, the new employer would be doubly liable. So to have to ask that question, uh, I think that's almost a requirement for our potential employer now. You know, that's actually, that's an excellent point. I hadn't stopped to consider at first, but I mean, you're right. Uh, you know, certainly if somebody wanted to hire a disbarred accountant uh, to be your next VP of finance, you're going to put that person through extra due diligence. That does get to the microeconomic uh, argument that these business professors floated, like where does the penalty come from? Maybe it comes from the extra due diligence you need to do and the extra arguing you need to do to say, okay, we're still going to hire this person. That exists on a case-by-case basis. And then when you sort of scale it up to the whole company uh, winds up being a shorthand of, well, you know, these people work at these sketchy companies. I don't know. Maybe they were sketchy. Maybe they're not, but I got a dozen other resumes here. I might as well go with them instead. Or, you know, to your point there, you know, maybe they're going to have to put in extra due diligence. That's going to come out of something somewhere. Um, Recruiters get paid based on the size of the salary. So the more work they do, the more fees they're going to have. And therefore, you know, the company's going to be looking to try and get that cost back somehow. Um, I could see where you're saying, you know, that that could be part of the big explanation of where these penalties come from. So, Matt, I found this a really fascinating article and, and the discussion was uh, even much richer than, than I would have thought going forward. But it's a, a fascinating point. The, uh, the thing I would like to end with is. I saw uh, representatives from the Department of Justice in 2017, specifically Ken Blanco and Rod Rosenstein, talk 
quite a bit about in the FCPA world the economic damage that corruption brings to individual economies or countries, their economies, and corporations, and corporation shareholders. And this type of discussion and this type of academic rigor or academic analysis based upon the rigor of these two, I think is really leading uh, the discussion of the perils of corruption and the responses to corruption in, uh, I think, positive ways. And and I really want to ask you about that in terms of the scope of your professional career as a business journalist. Have you seen a change in the discussion uh, around corruption or at least the uh, kind of theoretical basis for the prosecution of corruption? I mean, it, in in certain ways, yes, I think I have. I think there's a, a big consensus among large companies, certainly, that like corruption does them no favors. And I I might liken it more to uh, what what the citizens of corrupt countries go through. You know, when I see people over here say, well, of course you have to bribe in India. That's just part of the culture. And I've talked to Indian nationals and they it makes their blood boil because they're like, no, we do not like bribing people. You know, we get hit up for bribes in Delhi and Mumbai and everywhere else all the time. And we hate it. Um, corruption creates friction in the business process that gums up how, what a price of a good really really should be. It gums up the profit you really should get. It gums up your ability to earn a living. It just it distorts everything. And so the anti-corruption that gets that out of the system uh, is a good thing. And I think people are, in various ways, starting to realize that the, the costs of the anti-corruption effort are a far, far smaller cost than the damage that the corruption would have happen. You know, I mean, how much time did you waste with your anti-corruption training this year? I don't know. You could probably figure it out, but is it going to equal the 143,000 I extrapolated for 12 years of money lost over the course of my career? Um, you know, that kind of stuff that can, those equations, those examples can really resonate with people. Um, so I, would love it if people took this chart I did up on my um, blog, you know, take it, drop it into your next PowerPoint and shoot it all over the place at your organization, because that is a good gripping detail. Well, Matt, this has been a uh, fascinating discussion. Uh, I've been visiting with Matt Kelly on his blog post of January 15, entitled The Salary Penalty for Misconduct. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly compliance podcast that takes a deep dive, literally going into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. And I hope you'll join us again next week when Matt, Kelly, and I take another deep dive into a compliance-related topic. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.